Today's episode of the PaddleWoo podcast is brought to you by Blue Zone SUP. Blue Zone specializes in paddle surfing retreats and camps, and you guys have heard and seen loads about our surf and our coaching, but you have not seen or heard much about our area and our facilities. Here's recent guests, Adam and Lindsay, talking about their trip to the Blue Zone. Paddling in Garza is magical. I felt very zen at that time. I probably could have laid on my board and just, <laughs> you could have just left me there and I would have been great. It would have been awesome. Fresh salads and fresh uh, fruit smoothies, just out of this world. Fresh pureed drinks, I just felt healthier. The sunsets are the best I've ever seen in my life. And then of course the sunset. Every two minutes at night was the best time <laughs> of the trip, just to catch those. Uh, Ziplining was so much fun. The horseback riding was absolutely unbelievable. Casa Corona is its own little magical paradise. The master suite on the top is out of, out of this world. <laughs> the master bedroom suite is banging. I will... Can I come live here? <laughs> can I tell them to move in? Uh, Adam Champagne, I'm the graphic designer and marketing director for Stand Up Journal. My name is Lindsay Scharf and I'm the communications manager and brand content manager at Sotheby's International Realty. Corporate. I'm coming back. We're planning our next trip. Book your trip at bluezonesup.com. Can't wait to see you guys in the Blue Zone. It's the Paddle Podcast. What's up, folks? Thank you for tuning in to the Paddle Podcast. I am your host, Eric Antonson, coming to you from a beautiful day in Costa Rica. The eddy swell finally filled in. Yesterday was kind of strange. The forecast said it was going to be very good, 19 seconds, 2 feet, but the steeper souths are not getting to us. So today, the period changed to about 15, 16 seconds, and the swell finally arrived, and it was quite fun out front. Really good. Uh, so I'm happy, and I love coming and doing these shows when I'm pumped. So today's guest is Tyler Calloway. Tyler Calloway is the U.S. head for FCS. Uh, and so in that role, he's had a major hand in product development for the stand-up paddle world, and he gets into some of the newly released products from FCS. He is also the president of SUPIA, which is the International Association for Stand-Up Paddling, the industry. And he goes into who should be a part of the SUPIA, what benefits you have, and kind of what his goals are for the organization. You'll be, if you're in the SUP world, it's worth listening to that portion of the discussion, which comes at the tail end of the interview. Um, in other news, the one of the owners of 27 North Paddles was just down here last week, and I got to hang out with him for a day, uh, Phil Gallo, and that was a good time. There's some fun stuff that we're trying to plan together here. I love working with those guys. They have been incredibly supportive of what we're doing here at the Paddleboo Podcast, and I like their products. So it is always fun to get to interact with uh, Phil and Mike. Um, the discount, you can still get the discount on a 27 North Paddles, which are my favorite paddles, by using the promo code PADDLEWOO, P-A-D-D-L-E-W-O-O, and that will give you a 20% discount. The the two paddles that I use are the Kevlar and the Enegra, which is a carbon fiber, but lighter and a little bit more flexible. Lately, I have preferred the Kevlar because of the rigidity and the pretty much bulletproof. I guess people wear Kevlar bulletproof vests for a reason. The paddle has proven to be just as strong. 
Uh, this last weekend was the first stop of the Costa Rican stand-up paddle circuit here. It was held in Santa Teresa, and the waves were really good. Um, the contest was incredibly fun, too. It's been fun to watch. This is my second year doing the circuit here, and it has been incredibly fun to watch the level and the enthusiasm of the athletes in the stand-up world. It's, they're not, they're, the contests aren't big. We don't have a ton of athletes competing generally between, I don't know, 10, 15, something like that. But the folks that are competing are incredibly passionate. Most of them are, are dedicating the majority of their, of their time to paddle surfing and working with an industry too. And so you've got very healthy competition going on. The level is increasing rapidly every event. Um, there is a buddy of mine named Marcel who lives down in Hako, just surfed incredibly well this last event. Um, Jose from Ostinol, who lives up here near I, where, where I do, uh, surf, surfed really good. And then uh, some competitors, a guy named Mario Leon, comes in from Mexico to surf the events. Uh, Rolando surfing good. So it's been really fun to, uh, to surf those events. And then past champ Coco, who, uh, who works with a buddy of mine up here in Osaro, uh, is always surfing good and, and made the finals for this event too. Um, so anyways, I was stoked. I, uh, I actually won the contest, which was quite fun. Um, was really pumped on that. Um, and, uh, it was just really cool to have that vibe in the water. It's gonna be fun. We're gonna try to do some training with all the guys and create just kind of a, a more enthusiastic camaraderie here for the paddle surfing world, uh, in Costa Rica. Uh, on the progression project, I am pumped that we're going to be able to finally share a trailer here in the next few days. So hopefully within a day or two of listening to this show, you'll be able to go to paddlewoo.com or hopefully uh, any of the, the stand-up magazines out there. I know Stand-Up Journal will be running it. Um, I'm going to check to see if uh, something mag will as well. But the Progression Project trailer, which will be about a minute and a half, and showcase some of the surfing that went down here in November with nine of the world's best paddlers. If you're not familiar with that project, it was the likes of Mo Freitas, Giorgio Gomez, Sean Pointer, Zane Schweitzer, uh, Fisher, and Kieran Grant, um, Kayo and Ian Vaz. Kayo just won the uh, Sunset Pro. And the showing from the Progression Project crew out at Sunset was incredible. Fisher Grant got an equal fifth. Um, Zane went deep into the contest. Mo went deep into the contest. So that was really fun to cheer for all the guys that were down here and who have uh, who are going to be in the Progression Project movie that comes out here within the next couple months. It's taken longer. It was a lot more footage than anyone realized to go through, but it's coming out here shortly. So it's kind of a little update on what's going on in our world. Uh, next month, we've got Colin McPhillips and a couple other guys, some secret guests coming down. We're going to be filming and doing another project there that looks like it's happening. So cannot wait to be able to talk about that. That'll be in the next, uh, probably in the next month, I'll be able to let the cat out of the bag on, on that full, the scope of that full project. And yeah, so lots of fun stuff happening. Hit me up if you'd like to come down and visit and do one of our camps. We just announced dates for the summer and fall. They're at bluezonesup.com. Some of them are already almost booked. We released it about a week ago, and July 9th to the 16th only has one or two spots left. Um, and one of the other ones is pretty full too. So if you're interested, check that out and 
get with me uh, pretty quickly and I'll reserve a spot for you. All right. Tyler Calloway is the guest on the Padawoo podcast today. He is the U.S. head of FCS and the president of Sapaye. He's got an incredible story in the surf world, and I think that you'll be excited to hear it. Thank you for tuning in as always, and enjoy the show. Tyler, thank you very much for being on the show today. How are you? I'm great, Eric. Thanks. How are you? Good. Good. That north swell from the eddy swell didn't really show up for us this morning. I was all excited, woke up extremely excited to surf, and then I think it was too north, so we missed it. I hate when that happens. Man, you're so excited when you wake up. Um, <laughs> let's, start with, uh, let's start with your surfing history. How did you fall in love with the sport, and, and how did that become kind of your path? I grew up in New York, and I uh, was lucky enough to have a, a dad who loved the ocean. And, uh, you know, I was playing in the ocean on a little surf mat. There was no boogie boards way back then. You know, I was a little kid, and I think about eight years old, I saw the endless summer. And uh, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I didn't get a surfboard till I was about 11. I think somebody pushed me into a wave on one the year before, and... um. I got a surfboard. I never looked back. I knew that's what I wanted to do, and I wanted to do it all the time. So I sort of, uh, you know, just pursued it. Was you know one of the top kids competing in the ESA. Went to Hatteras every year for the East Coast Championships, and you know, soon after that was going you know boys division and juniors division to the U.S. Championships, and that led me to Hawaii straight out of high school. And um, instead of going home, I got a job working in a surfboard factory. I'd already sort of dabbled in trying to build surfboards in a garage. So um, got a job with Ed Searfoss on the North Shore um, working on surfboards and and uh, told my parents I was staying. <laughs> I wasn't coming home. And um, luckily for me, they, you know, kept very, you know, hard on me to to go to college and uh, I'm you know looking back on it, I'm really glad they did um, when I when I finished college I uh, where did you go to school started to feel like sorry where did you go to school oh I um, I kind of did a lap around the island I started in a private college which was called Hawaii Loa then it's in Kaneohe um, it's now Hawaii Pacific and the next year I went to Leeward because it was a closer commute to the North Shore and it, I think I paid $45 a, a semester back then. Um, ended up at UH. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, UH wouldn't take the uh, Hawaii Loa credits, even though it was an accredited college. And so I ended up back at Hawaii Loa the fourth year to graduate. So, uh, like I said, I did a, did a lap around Oahu, which wasn't bad. That was, that was cool. What did you study um, in school? Well, I started as a psych major. I was interested in why people thought what they thought. And second year psych started getting a little dark, and, and I wasn't really that into it. Um, so I went to communications, and then, uh, you know, when it came time to go back to Hawaii Loa, I threw it all into business to, to just wrap it into a degree and, and get my diploma. Gotcha. So... When did you get your first job in the industry? It sounded like you were involved with some surfboard shaping there. but um... Yeah, out of college, I moved back to New York, and I thought I wanted to be in advertising. I got an executive training program in Manhattan for 
I didn't last very long. It was the most kind of kiss-ass, you know, corporate thing I'd ever seen in my life, and it wasn't for me. And ended up back where my parents lived on Long Island, bartending and teaching windsurfing and selling newspaper advertising, and that led to a gig selling magazine advertising for Surfer, um, which led me to repping. I started repping local motion and um, uh, surf more and Astro Deck and um, Nectar Surfboards at the time was sort of the Channel Islands of, of you know, that vintage of surfboard industry. Um, after about nine or ten months, I got offered a job in California and I turned it down walked out of the meeting and the temperature had dropped about 30 degrees. I was going into my, what would have been my third winter back in New York after living in Hawaii for five years and, uh, did a U-turn, went back in and took the job and have lived in California since 84. It's kind of the happy middle ground between Hawaii and New York, I guess. There's a lot of opportunity here and the weather's not tropical, but it's pretty darn good. And, um, yeah, San Diego's home. So, Kind of went on to compete a lot in in amateur surfing. Became a a four time national champ in NSSA and USSF, and um, just kind of brought that back after uh, after a little hiatus in in college and stuff. And uh, it's been a fun ride. When did you start with FCS? And you had you were the first the first hire in the states with FCS. You you. Uh, yeah. Created. Yeah. Um, I was, uh, it was 97. And um, a friend of mine had seen some of the first FCS plugs um, and came to me and said, oh, I can make this. You can market it. Let's go into business. We'll compete with these guys. And I, you know, looked at them, looked at it. The three original founders were from Australia. And Spent a lot of time talking to them at a, at a trade show, asking a lot of questions, and um, concluded that they had money and experience and patents and um, infrastructure <laughs> that I didn't want to to compete with them. I was working as a marketing director at Reef at the time, and was the guy who was responsible for the Reef Girl thing, as well as the whole team of athletes and whatever. <laughs> so I didn't think I wanted to do it, and. Uh, they hired someone else, and that person um, ended up not taking the job at the last minute. And they uh, came back to me and, and eventually made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And uh, I was really excited to get out of the footwear business and back into something. I'd worked for Rusty for the boards and the clothing before Reef, and I was really excited to get back into something you could, a product you could actually ride and, and kind of saw the opportunity to change how people surf by changing their fins. So that was what really attracted me. Yeah. And it had to be fun times too, because it revolutionized the industry in a lot of ways and then created opportunity for other inventions in the sport. I assume, um, let's talk fins a little bit, especially in the sub world. actually, before we hop into that, when did you first start paddle surfing? Well, I, I first started paddle surfing probably, I want to say 03 or 04. I'm not even exactly sure. <laughs> but somewhere in there, it's it's been over 10 years at this point. And um, I started on a Munoz tandem, uh, 12 foot. There was, you know, 26 inches wide. There were no stand-up boards. I'd never seen one, you know. But I'd seen pictures of Laird and Dave Kalama 
riding boards like that and thought, you know, I want to do that. I want to do something when it's flat and, you know, riding little ripples. That looks like a heck of a lot of fun and it'll help keep me in shape. So when the surf's big, I'm not huffing and puffing. So that's how it started for me. And what place does paddle surfing uh, fit within your surfing regimen right now? You know, I think it's a great complement to to regular shortboard surfing. You know, for me, um, it's allowed me to really enjoy a, a whole lot of waves that um, I wouldn't be able to enjoy on a shortboard um, or or maybe even a longboard for that matter. I, I just get to uh, experiment with, with different, you know, types of paddle boards for, for riding waves and, you know, whether it's a little tiny ripple or a, you know, a really good wave. Um, it's been, a, you know, just a mind opener and a, and a game changer in terms of just being able to enjoy the ocean, different ocean conditions and really get the most out of it. Um, so, yeah, that, that's it's pretty special. Do you find that it helps your shortboarding too? Um, I think in terms of fitness, yes. In terms of what you're actually doing, there's a little transition. You're, you're throwing a lot more foam around. Even, you know, I've been building boards with a friend of mine for six, seven years, sort of my own, you know, custom stand-up surf designs. And I've had a blast just evolving those designs to perform better and better. But I don't necessarily think it's helped my shortboarding other than maybe fitness and conditioning, um, you know, ability to paddle, that, that stuff, yes. I've, I've always thought that it helps you see waves differently. So you draw different lines, and then by drawing different lines, you bring back aspects of that to your shortboard. At least for me, it's done that a lot. Um, That's a good point. You know, I, I tend to have kind of, long, you know, a few longboard style stand-ups that I ride a lot in the summer when it's really small. You kind of like either have a fish, like a 7-2 or 7-4 fish, and a and then a longboard, like a 9-6 or a 10-foot stand-up, you know, paddle longboard. And that's kind of my small wave, like, you know, it's great. Like having those two boards here in California, it's almost never too small to go out and have fun. And uh, so as far as subsurfing, that's been, that's been really cool. Excellent. All right, let's talk fins for a little bit. Um, I'm really excited. Let's start here because I'm so excited about it. I'm excited about the new longboard uh, stand-up uh, rear fin with the mm -hmm. FCS two pop-ins just yep. this last week, we had a camp down here and starboard and Hobie use different size, um, plates, I guess, to screw into. Mm -hmm. And we, we were down a fin screw and it was mm -hmm. just probably the most maddening hour. there trying to get ready to go out and surf was yeah. just switching fins around until we had all the boards loaded to, with a fin. So I can't wait for this been set up to come out um is it out already can you buy it it is it's just come out we've had the the glass flex ones which are sort of black nylon and fiberglass molded um, we've had those for a few months all the you know high-end fiberglass and carbon surf shapes and race shapes are just being released now um so that's been pretty exciting to start to get a little bit of feedback and a lot more in the next month or so as they start to get out there and will you explain how those work and do they work with any fin box? They do. What we did was we, we took the same 
uh, titanium rod and little roller that are in our shortboard boxes. And those things, they just sort of... So for anyone, who, for anyone who doesn't know, an FCS2 fin setup, instead of having the screws to screw them in, it's got, what, like a, a leverage point in the front, and then they pop in into the back, so you don't need any little, hardware. little horseshoe in the front of the fin that goes into a little notch in the front of the box. Okay. And then you just push down and push the back of the fin into the box, and there's a titanium rod in the side of the box with a little plastic roller. The rod flexes, the roller rolls into a notch in the fin, and it's locked in tight. But a little yank on the tip upwards, and it pops out. Um, so instead of, you know, I mean... I was pretty quick with an electric um, little ratchet wrench changing, you know, three fins still took a minute, minute and a half. And I can probably do it in 30 seconds or 20 seconds now for three fins that, that quickly, just popping them in and out. So it saves you a lot of time. It allows you to, to actually do it in the water. Just don't drop them. You can flip your board over, pop them out, hand them to your friend and try his or hers and, you know, doing that is really where you begin to feel the difference that fins make. I tell people when you think about what part of your board is actually in the water when you're doing a turn back on the tail, it's sort of a 45 degree angled swath of maybe the back third of the, the area of the board. Now you think about that surface area with three or four or even one, um, you know, fins on the bottom of it sticking off at a right angle and the surface area of both sides of those fins, and then the fact that side fins are designed like, like airplane wings to create lift. You think about all that equation, it stands to reason that a slight change in the template or the foil or the flex pattern of the fin is going to be noticeable to the rider. So that explains why fins make such a difference. But explaining it's one thing and giving a person one set of fins to try and then switching them, you know, right away with another set and sending them back out into the water. That's where the light bulb goes on for people. They, it's like, wow, it's like a different board. Oh my goodness. And well, if this one does that, what does that fin do? And what does that fin do? And what about combining them? So as we at FCS started to just, you know, decipher this and really experiment with it, we found a lot of things that we could do to help, perf you know, improve the performance of our boards and, and our athletes' boards. And, you know, we were lucky enough to be able to work with people like Kelly, who was incredibly aware of his equipment and was always looking for a competitive advantage in, in performance and, you know, helped us really see some of the, the paths that we were on were better than others and, and, you know, improve the, the overall performance of the fins that we were offering to the public. Since you mentioned Kelly and his fins, can we talk about the K2? I know these are shortboard fins, but I've, I've used them in stand-ups too. I think those are some of the best fins ever made. What makes that K2.1 design so versatile? And it holds in bigger surf, but then still feels like it has a lot of release. Um, I don't know. What, what's so special about that fin design? Well, it's got a fair bit of area. The base is big. The tip is relatively big. And Kelly drew that template himself. Um, he uh, he was playing around with a few different fins, and he came up with that template, and we made it for him. Um, 
one of the other things that's really different that that fin's fairly upright mm-hmm. um not a lot of rake to it meaning that it has less rake so right. rake is the amount of distance that the tip of the fin extends back behind the base of the fin so if you drew a line straight down from the tip it would hit the back of the board behind the fin box because most fins have a fair bit of rake um I'm not sure if you can follow that, but sure. um, on the you know on a podcast, but hopefully you can. And so, the more rake or the more swept back the tips of the fins are, the more resistance you have through the second half of the turn, the more you're you have to press against. So the board draws out a longer arc of its turn, um, and it's not as uh, easy to put it in a really tight spot on the wave you, you're you're drawing longer lines um but you're also getting acceleration and, and tension and sort of a a give and take in terms of the performance that you're actually trying to get from from a set of fins or uh, any particular board for that matter so in the stand-up world what's going to be the closest fin to that design now for stand-up fin i usually like just a little bit more area what i'm using in my starboard right now are the performer large i think mm-hmm. uh, and they seem mm-hmm. to work great um yeah so yeah i uh, what's going to be the closest I, for well i think the, the first thing that you know people might want to understand is that everybody kind of thinks that well if you want your board to be looser you put smaller fins in it and if you want it to be tighter and be harder to turn you put bigger fins in it well that's not exactly true because your side fins are set up like airplane wings with one foiled side and one flat side basically or sometimes it's concave um, they create lift like an airplane wing does but only on the outside as of the of the turn on the inside of the turn the lift is actually being created down towards the the bottom of the ocean which is drag so you have water on on the inside of the board holding that front fin and water on the other side passing on either side of it of the outside fin the side fin and uh, creating lift which is powering you around that turn that's that acceleration you feel that's why if you take off on a thruster and you don't turn you go straight it doesn't accelerate it actually kind of slows down you have to turn rail to rail and kind of pump it to make it accelerate and go and that's that's because those side fins actually create lift. So the more lift you get out of a out of a side fin, the more you know forward propulsion you're you're getting. And um, let's, let's see here. I'm trying to think of a way to, to sort of make it um, the most user friendly. Um, the the main thing that I would hope people would understand is that bigger fins in the front on the inside it creates more drag and that helps you do a tighter more powerful turn so that old adage of well if I want the board to be looser I'm putting in smaller fins if I want it to be tighter bigger fins that's true in the rear. So if you want a board to be looser, put in a smaller back fin or two fins if it's a quad. If you want a board to actually be 
to turn easier and be loose, you put in bigger front fins and it will actually help the board turn quicker and sharper rail to rail um, than small fins in the front. So that's the first thing that people need to kind of um, understand of, of what's going on down there. And it only takes trying it for a couple of waves to realize like, wow, what a difference. Yeah, I love playing around with fins. I'm really excited about that new FCS2 uh, fin box fin because I there's so many days when you'll paddle out and it'll be a little bit bigger and you'll just start feeling. I, I hate sliding on the bottom of waves. I, if you can't mm -hmm. hold in a bottom turn, you lose so much speed. I can't stand that. And so mm -hmm. it's going to be really nice to be able to just you know do minor adjustments in the middle of a session yeah. for for um, for that. That's going to be yeah. Whether it's moving it or just having a couple of different um, fins, you know, in in stand up, it's you put another you know, center fin in your trunks, if it's a small one or, you know, another set of, you know, side fins in your trunks and, you know, go out and find some really good long waves to yourself and, and swap them in and out and really kind of dial things in. Yeah. That, that'll be fun. Yeah. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's go into what your focus at FCS is in the stand-up world. Um, how do you see stand-up in relation to the surf industry what is your focus uh, for business within the sport of stand-up race versus surfing versus pleasure? Um, and what products are you guys working on? Right. Um, well, I can't talk about too much about what we're working on <laughs> um, right now, but I can tell you kind of some of the stuff that we've just done. You know, you, you've already talked about the, the toolless fin boxes and FCS2 and, and uh, FCS2 Connect, which is the center fins, which, uh, you know, that that's that's going to be a pretty big game changer. We've been making, you know, center fins with screws and plates for 50 years or something, and, and uh, now you can just pop them in and out. And I think, you know, when you're able to start doing that, people start doing just what we were talking about, experimenting with their friends and feeling the difference and getting pretty inspired makes them want to, try different fins, buy different fins. And, you know, it's, it's good for us. It's good for the surfers and, and the subsurfers and it's good for the retailers. So, um, that's kind of a all around win, win, win. Um, you know, other stuff that we've done, it's funny because a lot of the stuff has come out of just stuff that myself or, or other people that I know, some of our athletes have said, well, I wish I had this. And so, you know, we, we make it, we made a, a better handle that has a vent in it. So it's a sort of a one-step thing, but it's really light, um, has some undercut in it. So it's really comfortable, but it's kind of uh, hourglass shape. So it's really hard for your big toe to go into it. Um, if you're subsurfing, um, that keeps your board really light. I've almost broken uh, my toe a few times on older, larger handles. Yeah, that that can be a concern, especially if it's, you know, in the balance point of your board, that's your foot's going to be around there somewhere at some point if you're surfing. So um, so we've done a, a really good grip that has dimples in it, which is a lot more comfortable to stand on um, than grooves. Um, and the dimples actually stimulate the bottoms of your feet. The blood flow gives you... Um, a lot more traction too. The traction's really good with it. The grip's really thin and it's 
closed cell so it doesn't soak any water. So the whole thing keeps your board really light. Um, again, you know, just progressing and subsurfing, you know, everything we wanted to go lighter and lighter and lighter. And um, so some of that stuff, we've done a pretty innovative um, few leashes for, for flat water um, and for surf that utilize just a, a short coil, um, not enough coil to get tangled because in the surf, that's always an issue. But in the surf, the, the short coil acts like a shock absorber. You're not dragging a lot of leash behind you, but that coil wallet, you, you wear it up on your calf so it's out of the water. And it helps the board sort of pop through the back of the wave so it doesn't get stuck and drag you, um, which, which I really like. And it also reduces a lot of the, you know, jerk that you feel on, you know, your leg, the leash, the board. So it reduces wear and tear of, on all that stuff in, in bigger surf. It's, uh, you know, in really big surf, I go to a straight leash, but, um, you know, anything into the head and a half range like that, maybe almost double overhead. I really like the short coil. Coil. It's a, it's a lot easier on the body and the, and the leash and the board and stays out of the way really well. Um, and your board's kind of right there. You can get reel it in and get back up on it and get your ass out of the impact zone when you need to, which, which helps. So, um, um, go ahead. Sorry. That, that's, that's a few of the things we've, we've done some different, we have this, uh, 3d red tip, uh, kind of a winged fin that we worked with for a while, um, that really helped performance of longboard style standups. It made them, feel like they were about a foot shorter than they were. They would go really smooth and and uh, turn really tight rail to rail. Um, and they would also nose ride really well. Um, so those were a lot of fun. Um, there's been a, a lot of stuff like that. I won't bore you with all of it, but, uh, you know, we do that. We do some innovative board bags. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, all the, all the different luggage and auto products. We've done some innovative... Um, we've got a locking bungee with a combination lock that you can just clip it like a normal bungee or just roll the combination lock to lock it. And that makes life a whole lot easier. I always hated like having to thread through my locking tie downs each time and set it up. It was, was a lot of work. And then to get up there with the key and unlock it and it just, um, the, the combination lock, the locking bungee that we make is kind of the quickest, easiest, most functional thing I've ever used. And, and I love that. I mean, it's got a, it's got a chain in it. If somebody has bolt cutters in about five minutes, they're going to work their way through it. But, um, you know, day to day, it keeps, uh, keeps honest people honest. And if somebody's, somebody's really kind of wanted in order to get your board, you know, so, um, that's been good. That sounds pretty cool to see. Um, how does the stand up business fit in with your surfing business? What, percentages what can you talk about there as far as the relationship between the two from a business business side of things you know they're they're sort of not that similar really i mean sup uh stand up paddling so flat water driven when you look at the market as a whole and the, the amount of participants what percentage know, is our, flat water our research says that um 
Sorry, what did you say, Art? Oh, well, yeah. What percentage is flat water versus race versus? Uh, surf? Our research says it's a well. Our research says that surfing is about nine percent, and that racing is also about nine percent. Um, so, and there's some inflatable stuff in mountains and stuff like that, but eighty something percent of stand up paddling happens in flat water, and you know it doesn't take a genius to just kind of look around and notice that you know, more than half of that 80% are still relatively inexperienced. Um, so, you know, it's a tremendous growing market. Um, but the, you know, the uh, demand for, you know, high performance products like, like we make has yet to really reach the um, the heights that, you know, we, we expect it to. So there's a lot more demand for rail tape and products like that than there is for, you know, a really innovative, good leash for surfing or, you know, our, uh, ocean racing or flat water, even flat water racing, you know, most, most lake racers don't probably wear leashes, but, you know, the, uh, the safety aspect of it is really everybody should wear a leash. And in some cases you should have a PFD and in some cases it's required in other cases it isn't. But, um, does the surfing industry and the stand-up industry, um, are they modeling each other from a, an economic perspective? Um, are they on similar paths? I don't think so. I think, you know, most of the guys, um, whether you're talking about Sven or Robbie Nash or even, you know, people like Chris DeServo at BIC, a lot of the, the guys that are, you know, at the helm of, of the biggest brands, um, I'd say more of them, their background comes from windsurfing um, than from surfing. I mean, pretty much all of them surf as well. Some of them, you know, I guess they all, all those that I mentioned, they all make surfboards too. Um, so they're all surfers, but they, uh, you know, I think the, the model for the stand-up paddle industry has been drawn much more heavily off the windsurf industry than the surf industry. You think that's part of the reason between the surfing stand-up tension? Because it doesn't come from the surf industry then, per no, se? I think, no, I mean, no. <laughs> I was <clears throat> one of the first guys on a paddleboard in San Diego and you know, I think surfers, I mean, they, you know, they didn't like the boogie boarders and they didn't like the, the guys on the, um, surf skis and, um, you know, then longboarding got really popular and they didn't like the longboarders and, you know, it's just like, who are you going to hate on next? The most different person, you know, you, who, who's standing out in your lineup. And if you're standing up, you're standing out. You know, that said, I mean, I'm, I'm a lifelong surfer and I still probably identify with being, you know, a surfer as much or more than I do with, with being a stand-up paddler. I see myself as both. You know, I used to stand-up paddle in, a, you know, sort of some of the um, premier spots in California. And I kind of stopped, you know, early on it was it was a novelty you go out and go left when everyone was going right or you know find a little little you know 
wave that no one wanted. But, you know, it's it's hard to, you know, California, the lineups are so crowded and it's really hard to mix the two sports. There's just, you need more room to maneuver on a standup. You're, you're taking off in different areas and, you know, I mean, it's just common sense and courtesy to want to be courteous and, and collaborative. Nobody wants to be out in the water with bad vibes or, you know, somebody that's taking, you know, too many waves or not, in control of their equipment and it's dangerous, you know, that's just a recipe for, you know, injuries and bad vibes and, and even, you know, fights and, and, you know, people trying to self-police their, their own lineups. So for me, I think, you know, one of the great things about standup is, you know, Southern California is crowded, but there's still a whole lot of waves that shortboarders don't want to ride. You know, it's just, it's not steep enough. It's too hard to catch. It backs off and then it connects to another little section. You add a bigger board and a paddle to that equation and you can have a blast all by yourself, you know, and, and that's, I do that a lot in the summer, sometimes even when the waves are pretty good, because if there hasn't been good surf in a while, all the my go-to spots are so darn crowded. Summertime, it's long waits in between waves. You know, it's I'll I'll get in and wait my turn on a shortboard just like the next guy. But sometimes it's fun to just jump in and get a a B or C grade wave all by yourself and get every set wave and nobody cares because there's nobody there. And um, to me, that's one of the big advantages of stand up is is I can still get those sessions in one of the most crowded surf zones in the world, I think. So that's, uh, you know, that's a beautiful thing. And uh, um, I, I think if everybody um, kind of took that approach of like, yeah, I just want to get off by myself, there's still plenty of, of room to spread out. It's just not the premier spots where, where people are, are focused on surfing. One of the other hats that you wear is that you are the coach of the University of California San Diego surf team. Um, and couple that with the fact that you've been the head of US FCS and had to work, been able to work with an incredible surf team there. What do you think makes an elite caliber surfer? The difference between, you know, the N uh, NSSA champion and a Slater and a Fanning. Where's that difference? Oh, I mean, a lot of it's ability, you know, um, they say those who can do and those who can't teach. So I teach. Right. But I mean, I, I competed for years. I, I got some national titles and I'm a two time cancer survivor. I went back at, at 50 to surf against all the amateur guys that I surfed against, you know, back in the 25 year old days in, in men's and masters and stuff. And, and it was really fun to, to you know mix it up with those guys and you know it's always more fun when you win um but uh you know competition is um is one way people kind of get their satisfaction from from any sport and um you know I, as a coach i mean that was my chance to pass that on my wife and i both surf we've got 15 nieces and nephews and a sort of a hanai family over in hawaii and uh we sort of have the spoil them, send them back motto, but having a, 
team of, you know, 18 UCSD college students and, you know, a lot of new ones each year as, as kids rotate through. Um, it's kind of like having a, a surrogate family of kids and, and also kind of like having a, a little private focus group for surf products and, and marketing <laughs> campaigns and stuff. And really keeps you young. You know, I'm in my fifties and, um, I can still mix it up with those kids. I can't beat them probably most of the time, except if I get really lucky. But I can still hold my own in a heat with with most of them, and and uh, it's fun to see the look on their faces when they see that happening, and they kind of treat you different when you they realize like you know the old guy can walk his talk. He's all right, you know. So it, it's been fun. I mean, competitive surfing for me is really about preparation and and confidence um those are the two things i think that's what separates um most of the guys who are winning at any level from from the others um being prepared knowing what you need to do when you paddle out in that heat where are you going to sit what wave are you looking for you know what are you likely to to be able to do with it um and having all that kind of already baked into your game um, so that you can kind of turn your mind off. I mean, if you're midway through a wave and you're thinking about whether you should do an off the lip, you know, or try to do an air, you're probably going to screw it up. Um, everybody seems to surf best when they just let their mind run free and they just follow their, their instincts. So the, the goal with coaching for me is to, to, you know, train everybody to have really good instincts. And so we, you know, and and then just to do everything by instinct and surf their best, not to to panic and tighten up, to automatically kind of know, you know, I want to get the two best, two first best waves of the heat and put the pressure on the other guys. I know where they're most likely to come in. I know about when they're going to come in. Um, I know if they're going to be a right or a left. I know the fastest way to get to that place when I'm paddling out. Um, and I know who's likely to be there um, trying to trying to jockey me to get that wave. Um, when you know all those things, then you can kind of turn your mind off and just psych yourself out and visualize, you know, you riding waves well, waves coming to you, success, all of those Tony Robbins-esque kind of things that you hear late night when you can't sleep and you're watching TV. Um, that stuff always worked for me, and it, it seems to work for um, a lot of people that are at the top of, the, of the, the competitive food chain, so to speak. So I think psyching yourself in, in that way, um, I'm a big advocate. I think, you know, you, if, you, um, if you see positive outcomes in your head, it's a lot easier to, to make them happen. Are, are you a, are you a goal setter? Um, yeah, I am. Um, not as diligent as some, but yeah, you, you gotta have a roadmap of where you want to end up. Otherwise you're just driving around, you know, <laughs> lost kind of. So, um, if you, uh, you know, that's not to say that you have to take the same specific route every time. There might be a shorter route. There might be a more scenic route. But 
it really helps to know where you want to end up and know where that general direction is and have some ideas about the routes you might take and what you're going to need to get there. Who do you think right now is leading? Who are the guys that are leading the sport of paddle surfing? And who do you see carrying that torch for the next few years? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, when it comes to paddle surfing, you know, gosh, there's so many amazing guys out there. Um, Sean Pointer's always been one of my favorites just in terms of his style and his, his just his human approach to things. Um, you know, I, I really like the way he surfs. Um, you know, Zane Schweitzer, same thing, so radical. Almost looks like he's just riding a shortboard. Watched him at sunset. I mean, this year, last year, um, there was there's so many good guys. But those those were two guys that I really I think they early on they kind of started um, blazing, you know, performance paths that some of the other younger guys have have followed. Now you're seeing you know a lot of those guys you know kind of coming up. Um, you know, whether it's um, Giorgio or Riggs or, um, you know, uh, there, oh, there's too many. I mean, Kyo, uh, you know, amazing. You know, Kai Lenny, uh, I mean, unbelievable performances in big waves and, and small waves too. But, you know, what, what Kai's done at, at Piahi is just amazing, you know. Um, but... You know, I have a lot of uh, appreciation for, you know, guys like the older school guys, too, that, that you know, kind of the the OG, you know, whether it's, you know, somebody like, like Jerry Lopez that's just so smooth and, you know, I'm just going to say regal in his approach to, uh, to riding a wave or somebody like Dave Kalama um, who really has a lot of fun with it and when he busts out, some some serious you know shortboard moves or longboard moves you know it's it's a thing of beauty it's it's really cool to see um you know there, there's so many people that are you know really really influential um in that arena it almost kind of boggles the mind like um couldn't name them all but but those are those are a few of my favorites you know um Izzy Gomez has sort of reset the standard for, for women's performance, you know, and just, um, you know, uh, Candace has, has been in there for years and, uh, Nicole Pacelli, um, you know, has done some, some cool things in, in big surf and in, in small surf. Um, there's so many young athletes now that, are sort of following, you know, those examples. And those examples are two, three, four years old at the most. So it's such a young, young thing. I really don't see all those people that I mentioned going away. You know, they're, they're good and, and beyond good that, you know, that good doesn't begin to cover it, but um, they're inspiring is what it is. And they're inspiring this, you know, this younger generation of the, Guys like Riggs and um, 
um, you know, Brent, Rodinger, and and you know, there, there's too many to mention. Um, you know, can't can't go down that list. What do you what do you uh, look for in an athlete when you're building the FCS team? What characteristics outside of surfing ability? You know, it's the the whole athlete thing. I mean, the the first thing I look for is I mean, you have to look for talent because um, that's where it all starts. So, but then there's so much more than that. You know, the next thing is, are they a good human? You know, are are they a good role model for other humans? You know, much less um, other athletes. Um, so that's, you know, talent's sort of a given, you know, being a good, good role model and good human is, is, you know, key, I think. And, 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 um, you know, then it's become, are they a good communicator? You know, are they, are they good with people? Can they, can they express themselves? Can they, um, you know, capture people's attention and imagination, uh, in person or, you know, electronically, um, you know, it helps if they're good on social media, but that's sort of a two edged sword. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a fine line between being inspirational and being obnoxious. Sometimes I, I find on, on social media. And, um, I think a lot of people sort of struggle with that. And there's a lot of people that are, what becomes, what becomes obnoxious on social media? What, what would be a deterring factor there? Oh, well, let's just say too much about nothing, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> that, that becomes obnoxious, you know, I mean, if, if you want to make sure you have something to say and before you, before you say it, I guess would be, you know, where that, and that, I mean, it's a lot easier to say that than to do it. So, um, that's gotta be an interesting I, line for these athletes to walk in so far as so many companies judge them based on their social reach. I know that if you're going to yeah. get sponsored by a GoPro or um, the first thing they do is they look at your Facebook mm-hmm. page, your Instagram, how many people are you talking to? And you can get sponsored just by having a large reach in that regard and not be an incredible athlete. Yeah. Um, and so there is that whole attention grabbing side to the surfing industry now, which I don't know if it's good for it or bad, but it's interesting that from your position, you see negatives there as well. That's interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's a tough line for brands too, whether it's, you know, in what they ask of their athletes or what they count as content. I think we're, you know, the social media, the rise of social media has, has led us to a place where, you know, um, advertising, now passes as content, you know, and we're all being bombarded with stuff to look at, stuff to read every time we open a phone or a computer or, you know, a tablet. Um, And, you know, I think quickly people get to a place where they think less is more. And I don't know, it's interesting to see where it's going to go. But you know, the people that I'm interested in, you know, looking at what they are, the people who who take care to to have something worthwhile to say when when they say it, you know, and and um, that might just be a beautiful image on Instagram sometimes. But, um, 
diversity and, and quality of the, the information and, and stuff that's inspirational and makes you makes you think is uh, is what attracts my attention more than more than the other stuff. Yeah, I was just uh, I just spent a week with some folks um, who have fairly popular uh, books and some stuff and we were having a discussion these guys are way smarter than I am, but about long form content. And one of them is really leading the charge back to long form content, which a, pod, a, po a podcast is long form content. And I think that there's a need for that. I think there's a need for something that lasts longer than the 30 seconds. You know, you look at it on Instagram or maybe 30 seconds would be yeah. a long time. Um, so that's interesting. Well, let's get into your role with the uh, Supia. Um, the organization that you are now heading up. Uh, so define what that is and explain it, your goals, and then let's kind of go through the, okay. po the positives um, of that organization for the sport. Okay. Um, so um, first we call it SUPIA, so the okay. Stand Up Paddle Industry Association. Okay. So you're not the first person to call it SUPIA, <laughs> so don't don't worry. But it is, it's the Stand Up Paddle Industry Association or SUPIA. So um, that's our that's our little branding tag there for the day. Um, what it is is um, it, it's really based on bringing you know manufacturers and retailers together for the good of the industry and the sport. You know, stand-ups become so popular now, and it's grown so fast that, um, you know, there's a there's a lot of people in that business. But most of the people that have been in it for a while, and even some of those who have just entered it, um, are really in it for their love of the sport. You know, and that's how they started. They they started with the intent to to try to make a living doing something that they love. You know, I guess the industry continues to be under mounting pressure from competition amongst manufacturers and to a certain degree retailers as more and more businesses enter the market. You know, everybody's looking for a sustainable, profitable business model. Um, and our goal at, at SEPIA is to provide a, a conduit for communication and, and understanding for the industry and, and also to, to unite the industry um, you know, under under one voice in areas of legislation. You know, we're still losing a a couple people every year stand up paddling. It's it's really unfortunate. Um, some people would say it goes with the territory, and and you know, I, I think to some extent that's true. But you know, where people's lives are being lost, I guess we as people in that industry have a certain responsibility to really look at ourselves and ask ourselves what we can do to, you know, that we're not already doing to help protect the public. And as an industry association, you kind of want to try to tread that line between protecting the public and not regulating the industry in such a way that if everybody had to wear a leash, a PFD and a helmet and a whistle, to go stand up paddleboarding all over the country, it'd be hard for a lot of us to do that. We'd be pretty bummed out. And uh, so that's a worst case scenario. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but a united voice and a united industry that that is willing to put some resources into 
dealing with regulatory agencies is the type of thing that's, you know, that's necessary to be proactive about that stuff so that somebody doesn't slap, you know, cumbersome regulations on your sport that really don't achieve the goals that they had in the first place sometimes. So, um, so we're trying to, trying to do that, you know, um, I guess the other side of it is, uh, you know, everybody's looking um, for that place where the, the sweet spot for their business, and, and there is a lot of competition. Um, you know, our goal is, is um, to try to help people steer around some of the inevitable potholes that have taken out sports like windsurfing and rollerblading in the past. Um, you don't see a lot of either of those going on anymore, and they were tremendously popular you know 20 something years ago so um hang on one sec can i call you back i'm on the on a concert call thanks sorry about that no problem um so what do you think that that's a good segue into what do you think the prognosis for paddle surfing is stand-up paddle boarding as an industry i'm sure is going to be fine people are always going to paddle on flat water um there's no resistance there. What do you think the prognosis for the surfing side of the sport is? Well, let me, let me catch that in, in the terms of the whole industry and then break it off at the end, I guess, you know, break off a piece of it because I think this, you know, the prognosis for the whole industry or the industry as a whole, it's really about, you know, sustainability, profitability, communication and best business practices. You know, last year, SUP IA, um, we did the first manufacturer survey, which estimated the size of board sales in the U.S. market. No one had ever put that together before, and it wasn't easy, and a lot of manufacturers were, you know, reluctant to share their data um, at first um, because they didn't want someone to someone else to know or to rank them or, you know, everybody's kind of like, you know, going, well, you know, are they going to share theirs? and you know, how are we going to be portrayed? So there was a little bit of trepidation, but everybody needed that information. Nobody knew, you know, how big the market is. And I'm not saying, you know, we may still, you know, not actually know a hard number, um, although we've extrapolated one. And, you know, over time, the next few years, you know, and and on from there, we'll keep repeating it and we'll eventually get pretty darn accurate. There's a lot of people who think our number is a little bit high. There's a lot of people who think it's spot on. Um, the point is nobody really knows because there's no there's no definitive way to to track it yet. But you know, we've started that process. We're putting some stakes in the ground. We're, you know, we're doing that. Um, so um, before that um, for three years, we did a general population uh, market trends survey that, that comes out of the Internet general population uh, survey that you buy a few questions on it. And the, the participation rates in stand-up have been going up dramatically since we started the survey three years ago. So that whole fastest-growing water sport thing is is real. And, you know, that's no surprise to anybody who's who's been in this business for a while. Um, this year we're adding 
a retailer survey to try to dig deeper into what really moves the needle for retailers. And, you know, as you can imagine, that information is really valuable also to manufacturers who are trying to figure out what to make and how much of it and, you know, where they're going to sell the most of it and, and um, what trends are, you know, growing and which ones are declining, that kind of thing. So um, that's sort of the third leg of the research tripod, which, um, you know, I think is really important that, you know, the, the industry association provides that. Um, so, you know, I've had some leaders of the industry who initially told me that they weren't that excited about the research. They felt like they had a good seat of the pants grip on what was going on. Kind of reversed that in the last six months and, and say, you know what, things are really competitive out there. I do need the research because um, there's there's too many different things going on out there to really keep track of. So, um, so that's been sort of validating. Um, and, you know, along with the market trends, um, we've been doing and the retailer survey and the manufacturer survey that, that, you know, completes a pretty good radar screen for anybody in the business. Um, you know, they can kind of see what's, what's going on in different parts of the country and, and the overall health and climate of the, the industry. You know, besides that, SUPIA, we've, we've just retained a law firm, um, same one that's been with the wakeboard industry for about 10 years. And uh, I just attended their annual conference here in San Diego last couple of days, and they're probably five to 10 years ahead of us as an industry association. And it was, it was really nice of them to invite me, and it was great. I really learned a lot. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're doing as an industry association or as an industry is not that different from, you know, what, what they did and what they had to do. So, you know, they were sort of, um, really willing and generous to share their experiences and, uh, we'll put those to, uh, to good use, you know? Um, so what do you think having, the prognosis and state of the sport is currently? Well... Shit, I'm sorry. Hang on one second. Hi. I'm on the I'm on a conference call. Can I call you back? Thanks. Bye. Okay, sorry about that. Um the the last thing I was gonna say is we just um we retained a law firm um to do product warning labels, participation releases and and uh participation waivers and liability releases for events, for products. Um, for rentals, all, all of those kind of thing. And we make those available free of charge to our members in the intent of creating an industry standard that this is what most of the people in the industry use for these forms. And that makes them a lot easier to defend if you're sued. Um, you know, Your Honor, my client uses the industry standard forms and here's the law firm that wrote them and you know, here's 200 people that use this and, you know, he's done everything possible to, you know, safeguard the, the, you know, well-being of his customers, blah, 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 that, that kind of thing. What, so what's the cost of membership annually? What does it the entail? The cost of membership, uh, if you're a retailer, it's $150. 
If you're a manufacturer, it's $250 to $500, depending on your size. Um, if you're a sales rep, it's $50. Um, so it's really affordable. You know, if you compare it to most of the other industry associations, they're multiple thousand dollars. And we'll probably have to raise ours um, a little bit coming up this year. But being three years old and um, being pretty good at bootstrapping most of the stuff we do, we have an executive director named Kristen Thomas who's uh, worked very hard for three years um, for not very much money. And she's been great. She's been very effective. And um, she's very passionate about the sport and about the organization. We have a great dedicated board of directors, um, all who volunteer their time just like I do. Um, and I'm very grateful to, to all of them um, for all the hard work that everyone's put in. You know, we couldn't have achieved half of what we've done without that. So, you know, these are these are people that, you know, have really given their time for the good of the, the sport and the industry. And, and um, you know, I, uh, I salute them. I, I don't you know, it's it's not all about me by any means. I just happen to be the guy that got talked into taking the chair this this uh, year. So, all right. So, um, let's start wrapping some things up. Uh, who who inspires you? Mm, who inspires me? Gosh, there's ah, oh, there's so many people that you wouldn't know, you know, some of, some of the people on the board of directors for sure. Um, but you know, people like Jerry Lopez and Dave Kalama come to mind straight away. Um, just for the, the way they handle themselves in the water and on land with so much grace, um, how they, they, you know, ride waves for, for one thing and, you know, handle heavy situations in the water, but, you know, the, the same thing on land, how they, how they treat people and, you know, somebody like Mickey Munoz, um, you know, same thing, just amazing. Like I could name people, you know, all, all day literally. And, but the common thread there is, um, you know, someone told told this to me was their little mantra was uh wake up kick ass be kind repeat and i guess <laughs> that's a pretty good distillation of it i really love that one um so we uh i guess you know th those are the people that i try to try to emulate and draw inspiration from um and any closing thoughts? Anything you want to leave the listeners with? Um, you know, I think the thing that stand-up paddleboarding is is really dealing with right now is is kind of what is it? Because it's so many different things to different people, and to some people, it's uh, you know, it's Dan Gavir dropping a waterfall you know, and the adrenaline of doing, doing stuff like that, or Kai Lenny at Jaws, or Zane Schweitzer at Chopu, or, um, you know, all of those things. And to other people, 
It's a paddle in their backyard lake that's the size of a Vaughn's parking lot, you know, um, and just peace and sunshine and a little little tranquility away from the phone or the kids or the the traffic or the computer, whatever it is. Um, and everything in between, you know, and the thing that I keep coming back to is we are a, you know, despite the spectrum of diversity in that and the, the adrenaline levels of the participants in that spectrum, um, we're all in this together and we share that common bond of, you know, getting on the water, whatever the water you choose is and feeling that glide. And, you know, that's the parallel I see to surfing. That's the release that you get. That's the common bond that forms the brother and sisterhood, um, in the sport. And my next thing in my head and, and what I keep talking with my fellow SEP IA members and board members is, you know, saluting those people that really share the stoke, that take the time to, you know, see a, see a new paddler and, and go, you know, hey, how you doing? Hey, we, you know, we have a meetup group on Wednesday night or, you know, we go out and ride ripples and in uh, the river mouth on, you know, on Saturday mornings and what, you know, whatever it is. Um, and, you know, try my board, try my paddle. Um, you know, it's, it's no secret that, you know, the price of a, of an entry level stand up board last summer dropped from about 1100 to about 600 and something dollars. And a lot of them come with paddles and, it's no secret that most of that equipment, if not all of it, isn't quite as fun to use, doesn't perform as well as the better equipment. And, you know, it's people that share the stoke with that, that welcome people into the, the community of paddlers and give them a leg up and show them kind of, hey, don't paddle out over there, paddle out over here, you know, or, you know, watch out for this or you know, meet us on Tuesday nights. We're all going to have a barbecue and some beers. Um, it's those people that make the difference in, you know, a bunch of individual paddlers' lives in terms of that person, you know, either becomes a lifestyle paddler or just somebody that has a dusty board in the garage. And, um, you know, for the sport, the thing that I really like about it is it's, it's you know, the, the wave riding thing, it's a little bit of a limited resource, um, but there's still so much open water and waves that people don't even care about surfing out there that you can go stand up paddle on that, you know, that's a great thing. And, and the rest of it, it's not a limited resource like surfing. There's not, you know, a hundred people that want to surf lower trestles in you know in the stand-up world there probably is but they're 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 not it's you know the sport as a whole it's so inclusive and the barrier to you know 
getting to a level where you can really enjoy it is is pretty low in terms of you know time and and money that you need to to expend compared to almost any other sport I know that you know requires a a piece of equipment you know so um you know I guess I think we really need to think about it in those terms and welcome people to the sport and salute people who do that on a regular basis, you know, and, and promote that. I think that's, that's really important for where we, uh, where we're going to end up as a, as a sport and as an industry 10, 20 years from now. So that's, um, that's the next initiative that I'd like to, to put on the, the SUP IA calendar and, and, uh, um, I'm going to try to get people like, like you and everybody listening to, to your podcasts to, uh, and everybody else in the media that I know to, to embrace that and come along with that because I think that's a, it's a real win-win. So. I love it. Tyler, thank you very much for being on the show today. I've taken up more of your time than, and I and uh, and we wanted to, but I appreciate you being generous with it. My pleasure, Eric. It was great talking with you. You asked some great questions, and uh, I really enjoy your podcast and the people you've had on, and and kind of what you're doing. I think it's a real, really cool part of of the sport and the and the fabric that that ties us all together. So thanks for what you do. Awesome. Hopefully, we get to share a wave soon. Yeah. Well, let's make that happen. I. I'm not sure if I'm coming your way, but if you have any reason to come this way, please let me know. It's the Paddleboo Podcast. Today's episode of the Paddleboo Podcast is brought to you by Blue Zone SUP. Blue Zone specializes in paddle surfing retreats and camps, and you guys have heard and seen loads about our surf and our coaching, but you have not seen or heard much about our area and our facilities. Here's recent guests, Adam and Lindsay, talking about their trip to the Blue Zone. Paddling in Garza is magical. I felt very zen at that time. I probably could have laid on my board and just, <laughs> you could have just left me there and I would have been great. It would have been awesome. Fresh salads and fresh um, fruit smoothies, just out of this world. Fresh pureed drinks, I just felt healthier. The sunsets are the best I've ever seen in my life. And then of course the sunsets. Every two minutes at night was the best time <laughs> of the trip, just to catch those. Uh, zip lining was so much fun. The horseback riding was absolutely unbelievable. Casa Corona is its own little magical paradise. The master suite on the top is out of, out of this world. <laughs> the master bedroom suite is banging. I will, can I come live here? <laughs> can I tell them to move in? Uh, Adam Champagne, I'm the graphic designer and marketing director for Santa Journal. My name is Lindsay Scharf, and I'm the communications manager and brand content manager at Sotheby's International Realty. Corporate. I'm coming back. We're planning our next trip. Book your trip at bluezonesup.com.